as artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. Michael, have you ever just stepped back and, I don't know, sort of marvel in all that technology has been able to do for us in these recent years? Wow. Well, that's a deep question uh, to start an episode. But yeah, you know, I I have thought about that. It's, it's easy to get caught up in the crazy world of tech we live in, and we almost take it for granted. But we do live in some really, really interesting times right now. Times where individual citizens can go to space, where... I can strap on a headset and be taken to virtually any place on Earth, whether it be a movie theater or space den, hanging out with Mark Zuckerberg. Or, you know, more importantly than hanging out with Zuck, how today global pandemics can be combated by new vaccine. 
that's definitely a good one. We've talked about all these things in recent episodes of Rocket Ship, and these are amazing things. And behind them all, in some way, there are product people and entrepreneurs making these one-time impossibilities a reality. Today, we dig into how even the apps we use, they've really brought what at one time seemed like a distant future right into our hands today. But also with some unintended consequences. All of this on today's episode of Rocketship.fm. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. scene from Back to the Future 2. It's such a classic. That's one innovation that never really did make it into the mainstream, right? Well, maybe not. I mean, the hoverboard that my son got for Christmas last year really isn't an actual Marty McFly-approved hoverboard, but think of the other Back to the Future 2 scenes. There's a time where the adult version of Marty McFly video conferenced in with his boss on a giant screen. That basically looked like the Zoom calls we've been living through these past couple of years, didn't it? It really did. It really did. I remember the the robot drone walking a dog. I, I don't think that actually happened quite yet, but it doesn't seem far off. Well, maybe not, but visiting the campus of my alma mater, Bowling Green State University, earlier this spring, I definitely saw robots delivering restaurant <laughs> orders to students off campus. So, who knows? Maybe those same robots will soon be walking our dogs. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. You never know. But even beyond the wild technologies that were imagined in futuristic movies like Back to the Future 2, even some of the basic apps that we use today are enabling things that we could have only dreamt about before. All right. So give me an example. Well, think about Twitter for a minute. Twitter. Okay. I, I wasn't thinking you were going there. Talking about futuristic technologies and all Twitter's, I don't know, pretty basic by these standards. That's That's true, but think about what Twitter's allowed us to do. An average Joe at any point can directly reach out to world leaders, Mm. A-list celebrities, even the Pope is on Twitter, and many of these people actually reply back to the people who reach out to them. Yeah, any any conversations with the Pope you want to talk about? Okay, no conversations (laughs) with the Pope. I've never tweeted at the Pope, actually, but... He has replied to other people, people that would have never even had the chance to communicate with him before. And it happens all the time. I mean, we see regular people with sparse number of followers trading jabs with Elon Musk or people getting beauty tips from Kim Kardashian, even trading jabs with today's political leaders is possible on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, I I seem to remember a formal political leader at once that was very active on Twitter. Yeah, well, not so much anymore, so we don't need to talk about that, but... (laughs) It's not even just being able to communicate with them. When I was fundraising for my startup in the past, 
I built relationships with investors and ended up getting many of them to invest. And you're not alone. Entrepreneurs like Amanda Getz of House of Wise, uh, investors like Matt Conwell of Rare Breed Ventures, they've both talked very publicly about how they've used those platforms like Twitter to communicate directly with their followers. And for them, that meant finding new investors and LPs too. Another great example of an everyday app that's really life-changing when you think of it? Yeah. Well, how about YouTube? YouTube, okay. Sure, think about it. Almost quite literally, anything in video form is probably on YouTube. Do you want to witness Martin Luther King's famous speech? I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Or do you want to watch Neil Armstrong take the first steps on the moon? Armstrong is on the moon. Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. That's one small step for man. Or how about that time Hulk Hogan body slammed Andre the Giant at WrestleMania? We're seeing what this guy is really made of. What he is. The greatest professional athlete in the world today. Look at this. He's You can find it all on YouTube and so much more. Did you really play a clip of Hulk Hogan body slamming Andre the Giant right after the MLK and moon landing? Okay, well, maybe that wasn't quite as historic or important as, say, the MLK (laughs) speech or the moon landing. But my point is you can really find anything you want pretty much instantly. And imagine saying that you could do that, say, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, it would seem like magic. Yeah, fair. Um Yeah, seriously. And in both of these cases, it's the content from users like, well, all of the listeners on rocketship.fm that actually makes each of those examples special. Uh, We, again, have the product people and entrepreneurs to thank, too. And these product people and entrepreneurs have built those products and built those apps very, very well. Maybe a little too well. A little too well? Well, let's go back to that amazing app. YouTube. And let's learn a bit of a lesson from Nir Eyal. Now, Nir is a renowned author who talks about using science-based insights to build up healthy habits, improve productivity and focus, and manage distraction. In this talk from Startup Grind, he focuses more on the building habits part. Nir talks about what apps, perhaps even like Twitter and YouTube, may be doing to keep us coming back to them for more. Let's listen in. I argue that it's not good enough to just give people what they want. It's not good enough just to give people what they want. What all of the products, all the companies that I mentioned earlier all do, they give people what they want, they scratch the itch, but they leave them wanting more. And here's how they do it. They all use a variable reward. A variable reward comes from the work of B.F. Skinner. B.F. Skinner was a father of operant conditioning. If you took Psych 101 back in college, you'll know the name. Skinner did these very famous experiments where he took pigeons and he put them in a little box and he gave them a disc to peck at. And at first, every time the pigeon would peck at the disc, 
they would receive a reward. They would get a little food pellet. They were all hungry pigeons, by the way. They had to have the internal trigger of hunger to begin with for this experiment to work. So basically, peck at the disc, get a food pellet. Terrific. That's called operant conditioning. He could train these pigeons to know to peck at the disc whenever they wanted the food pellet. But then Skinner did something a little bit different. Skinner introduced a variable reward. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc and no food pellet, no reward would come out. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times these pigeons pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. Why does this happen? Because variability spikes this reward system in our brain. It creates this wanting, this desirous response. And so in all sorts of products that you find most engaging, uh, most habit-forming, the things that capture your attention and won't let go, by the way, both offline and online, you will find these variable rewards. Michael, we are the pigeons. And apps like YouTube, Twitter, they've put us in the box. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> I actually had a great conversation with Nir for this episode, and we'll hear from him and somebody else to dig in a bit more, specifically on what happens when those apps work so well that we can't help but to keep coming back for more and more, maybe even during times that we don't really want to. More on that after a short break. Before the break, we talked a little bit about how the future is already here. Product people and entrepreneurs, we have you to thank because some technologies that we've only dreamt about decades ago are now everyday realities for us. Even some of today's most everyday apps, which aren't even the most technologically advanced, they are still making pretty amazing things possible for us. The apps are great, maybe even too great. Now we ended with a clip from Nir Eyal, renowned author of the book Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and also a new book, Indistractable, a book that's about how to combat distraction that in part, some of these apps can actually cause. And you actually spent a bit of time with Nir recently, didn't you? Yeah, I wanted to dig in with him on all of this. And we started the conversation with him telling me about how busy he was after writing that first book, Hooked. But then something happened. I uh, found myself very distracted <laughs> that after my first book started selling well and I started getting more calls and uh, requests for consulting and uh, I started getting busier and busier and I found that I was more distracted than ever uh, and I didn't have time to do the thing that I really enjoyed and that made me successful in the first place, which was the writing and the researching. And so I found that I was, I was distracted in my life, not only professionally, but also with my family, uh, uh, personally, and uh, even psychologically. I found that I wasn't doing what I said I was going to do. I, I would say I was going to exercise, but I wouldn't. I would say I was going to be fully present with the people I love, and yet I was scrolling my phone. And and I thought originally the problem was the technology that, you know, hey, maybe I, I, I got people hooked and now I have to get them unhooked. But I decided not to make that the book title because I found, guess what? Technology wasn't the problem. That there's a deeper psychology around why we get distracted, and it's not what most people think. We love to blame what we call the proximal causes, right? Whether it's the clicker in our hand or the phone scrolling or whatever the case might be, the booze, the news, football, Facebook will always find something to distract us unless we understand why we get distracted in the first place, which is why it's really a book about breaking bad habits. And so I really think we can have our cake and eat it too. We can build habit-forming products that improve people's lives, which is what Hooked is all about, but we can also 
also learn as users of these products how we can put them in their place so that we control these these uh, distractions as opposed to letting them control us. So from Nier's perspective, it's not just that these apps are completely to blame. People have been distracted since the dawn of time. If you weren't being distracted by your phone, you could be very distracted by something else. Yes, although I don't remember finding myself mindlessly turning newspaper pages a decade ago. <laughs> it's true. It's true. That uh, infinite scroll, right? It's one of those habit-building features of a product that, well, it really seems to work. And hey, look. That's one example. Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, these apps are all apps that probably are at the top of many people's most used app list if they fire up that screen time report on your iPhone that, by the way, nobody really asked for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who was that feature actually supposed to help? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was supposed to show us exactly this, though, that we may actually be addicted to our phones more than we think. Ouch. Yeah. No, it's true. Actually, let's come back to this thought later. But back to Nier. I did ask Nier if he thought that product people had a moral responsibility, given that, well, some of the apps we build, if we build them well— they could cause this big distraction in people's lives, potentially. Here's Nier with his take on that. So for the vast majority of people building products out there, their concern is not that people are overusing their product, right? Their problem is that nobody gives a crap about their product, right? For the vast majority of people, we're begging someone, anyone, please use what I built for you. Uh, that's, you know, anybody who's built product knows it's really hard to change people's behaviors. Uh, you know, look, I, I, I wrote the book Hooked. I know every trick in the book. I know exactly what Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack, what they're doing to keep you hooked. And I'll tell you that these techniques are good they're not that good, right? They're not mind control. They're not, you know, nobody's getting addicted to SaaS software. <laughs> nobody's getting addicted to a language learning app. Uh, we don't need to worry about, you know, for the vast majority of people building products out there, they have no hope of addicting anyone. <laughs> so they don't need to worry about it. Now, some products do addict people. Now, uh, any product that is used by a sufficiently large number of people will addict someone. Uh, because by definition, things that are engaging if it's used by hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, you're going to find someone who's addicted to it uh, because people get addicted to all sorts of things, right? People literally, there are people out there who literally, I'm not making this up, they get addicted to drinking water. There is such a thing mm -hmm. as a water drinking addict. Uh, but just because something is addictive to somebody doesn't mean it's addictive to everybody. So, you know, lots of people have a glass of wine with dinner. But we're not all alcoholics. About 1% to 5% of the population has an addictive disorder. So we need to make sure that we don't you know, medicalize and moralize. Just because people like to use something a lot doesn't mean that they're all addicted. But for those who are addicted, we do have a special responsibility. And this is something I've written about for years, that if you know someone is addicted to your product, how do you know? Well, you can have some kind of bar. And so this is what I call a use and abuse policy. And I think every company that has the potential of addicting someone should have this bar. Tell me the number of hours per week, whatever it is, 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week. Give me some kind of bar that says, hey, if you use our product X number of hours per week, we're going to reach out to you with a very respectful uh, message that says, hey, you may be using our product in a way that indicates you're struggling from an addiction. Can we help? Right? Can we help you? Can we help you dial back? Can we, uh, can, can, do you want us to lock you out? Is there anything we can do to help? Here are some resources that may help you with your addictive disorder. And, and uh, doing that, having a use and abuse policy, I think is, is, a, is a moral imperative. Now, lots of products that get people addicted can't do that. Right? How can the alcohol manufacturers possibly know who's addicted? They don't know. But if your company does know that somebody is using your product to an extent that they may form an addiction with it, 
and you know that is happening, then you do have a moral responsibility. But for the vast majority of products, it's not even you know something you need to worry about. So for most product people, we should be so lucky to have people worried about whether they're using our apps so much. Most of the time, we're just hoping that they'll use them at all. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I remember so many launches, and the last thing I was thinking about was whether we ought to wean people off the product. No, we're just trying to get them to use it in the first place. But <laughs> there is this concept that Nier talks about that you can, as a product person, think through when you are in that building phase. It's called the regret test. I asked Nier to share a little bit more about the regret test. So the regret test is a way that we can uh, ask ourselves a key question in an organizational context to make sure that we use these principles of behavioral design in an ethical manner. Uh, so what I wanted was a new ethical test. You know, we, we've probably all heard as product designers uh, these various ways that we can make sure we're ethical in terms of our design principles. And, and so it's, it, you know, I was looking for a better solution. Uh, well, we need to start, I should back up, we need to start by understanding that all design is a form of manipulation. Okay, all design, whether it's graphic design, interaction design, heck, interior design, <laughs> anything that shapes human behaviors or emotions is a form of manipulation. But that doesn't mean it's all bad, right? That we can use this for good. We can help people, we can persuade people to do things they want to do versus coerce people to do things they don't want to do. So per persuasive tactics are wonderful, right? If we're help, if we're building a, a product or service that helps people exercise more or save money or be more productive at work or connect with family, that's great. We're persuading them to do things they themselves want to do. That's perfectly ethical and should be encouraged. What's unethical is what we call coercion. Coercion is getting people to do things they don't want to do, things that they later regret. And so that's where I came up with this regret test. Uh, this is a simple test that you can use that's better than what I found was kind of existing practices. Like uh, Google had this, this motto, don't be evil. By the way, that's not their motto anymore. <laughs> but And it's kind of a crappy uh, ethical test because what does evil mean? What's evil to one person may not be evil to someone else. It's completely subjective. So that's not really a useful test. Uh, well, something that people say is disclosure, right? Well, let's just tell users what we're going to do to them and then we'll be fine. That's kind of a very lawyer answer, right? Just put it in the terms of service. Well, that's stupid because nobody reads the terms of service. So that's not very ethical either. So what I came up with was the regret test, which says that it is ethical to, to uh, use a design pattern, to, to use these behavioral design principles in order to minimize regret. How do we do that? The same way we have always done it. We bring in people and you do a usability test. This is something we've done for decades, right? We all know how to do usability testing. We show people a design pattern in some various stage of progress and we see how they go through that, that, uh, that experience. So we can do the same thing with an ethical practice. So when somebody brings up a potential dark pattern, right? One of these unethical uh, design practices, we raise our hand and say, you know what? I think people might regret that doing this. Let's run a regret test. How do you run a regret test? You bring people in, just like we always do with a usability test, and we tell them everything we know about what's going to happen. And then we ask a small group of users, maybe 10, 20 users, would you regret doing what you just did knowing everything that I just told you? And you have to tell them everything you know as a designer. So if there's any tricky practices, any uh, roach motels, any bait and switch, anything you're doing to them that they might later regret, you, you test that with a small group of people and you see, do you meet the ethical bar? The ethical bar in my book should be nine out of 10. Nine out of 10 people should say, yeah, I would totally do that. that that's fine. I don't regret that decision. And if you pass that ethical test, you pass the regret test. Now, the good news is you almost never have to run these tests because if you even so much as bring this up in a meeting and say, hey, we should really test this because I want to make sure that people don't regret 
this design pattern now before we push this out to everybody. Because, you know, if you trick people, if they regret doing business with you, they're going to tell everyone they know not to do business with you as well. And that's why most dark patterns don't last for very long. They get taken down because there's, you know, all this tumult on social media, people saying, look at this crappy thing this company is doing. So to save ourselves from doing that, let's run a regret test now. And this has a chilling effect. That if you so much as mentioned, let's run a regret test, nine times out of 10, you don't even have to run the regret test because people say, hey, you know what, let's let's find a better way to do it. You know, there's somebody else I talked to in researching this episode. I'm Doreen Dodgen McGee. I am a psychologist, a speaker, and an author, and I'm super interested in um, celebrating and loving people. And because of that, I'm also pretty interested in technology and social media and how they impact our ability to do that well. She sounds lovely. She is lovely. And, you know, her recent work is actually pretty similar to Nir's recent work. She has a book called Deviced, and it's not a hit piece on technology or the apps that we love to use, but it's a work that reminds us that we may need to be more intentional. Right. Sometimes these endless scrolls in our beds late at night, we're not even really wanting to do it. We're just doing it. I asked Doreen what she would say to the product people that design the apps we're talking about, the ones that we may be mindlessly scrolling through. Oh, good question. What would she tell them? I would say thank you for the incredible opportunities that you give us. And thank you for the amazing platforms that allow us to connect and um, engage and learn and be entertained. And I would encourage them to maybe take a look at some of the research and maybe begin to see if there are ways of integrating in more um, more deliberate pauses in our use. Because we know that even just stepping away for small bits of time to kind of come back to center physiologically and emotionally or being able to turn away from a device and take a few deep breaths, we know that small behaviors like that can actually really help stay and maintain emotional regulation, even amidst the dysregulation that comes with media, you know, use and kind of the proliferation of the way in which we engage with it all day long, every day. Well, that's great. I mean, hey, we should be grateful for these apps for giving us basically the world at our fingertips. But that's also some good feedback for those product people to hear, perhaps, you know, uh, on a flip side. And hey, for some product people out there, the use of these devices and apps it's more than just things that we're doing to pass the time. Some people do have a real issue, not completely different than issues that people have with things like, say, alcohol or drugs. Yeah, like addictions. Well, I asked Doreen about that. I mean, she is a psychologist and she's focused on this in her work, but she said that there's not really a recognized, quote, technology addiction, so to speak. But she did mention that there are signs to look for where technology use may at least be an issue for you. If you find yourself unable to be in a moment of stillness or feeling distressed or agitated when you come up against a moment of boredom, uh, for instance, if, you know, when Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram was down this week, if you found yourself agitated or angry or obsessively refreshing your feed, uh, those are probably some signs that you not only have just a behavioral uh, proclivity to be dependent on these places, but that also you trained your brain to not be able to tolerate stillness, boredom, the lack of kind of being constantly in touch, that you may really struggle with this kind of ambient sense that you're not either being enough or doing enough, or you're missing things, missing information or experiences. Um, we know that where the brain fires together, it wires together. And that means that if we are only 
um, exposing the brain to stimulation that is constantly changing and constantly giving us new, 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 like social media does or other forms of, of tech stimulation, that actually parts of the brain that would help us be able to tolerate stillness and boredom actually get pruned off. It's called neurological pruning. So if we aren't forcing the brain some of the time to tolerate stillness and quiet, emotional regulation, boredom, we lose the neurological ability to do it. So there's a double cost. So these great, wonderful apps, they're problems for some people, a lot of people. Maybe we can stop short of saying that they're an addiction, but they cause real issues. But if it is a real issue for some people, what do they do? I mean, do you just cut yourself off cold turkey? Yeah, we'll be digging into this more right after a short break. Okay, so before the break, we learned about how the future is right at our fingertips with apps like Twitter and YouTube. We can now communicate with world leaders, we live moments in history. Or just trade cat memes with our friends and watch uh, Fail Army, right? Whatever floats your boat. Yeah, exactly. No, look, these apps are great. Maybe even a little too great. In fact, for some people, unique features, at least at the time, like infinite scroll, well, they keep people glued to their devices. People are always looking for, as near notes, that variable reward of perhaps that picture that they're really wanting to see, or maybe that killer tweet. But what do you do if this is an issue for you? Do you just cut yourself off from tech completely, go on a digital detox, so to speak? Actually, both Nier and Doreen had something to say on that. First, Doreen's take. I respect people who do digital detoxes and want to do that, but not everyone can do it. And for many people, if they do try to take a digital detox, they will have costs that they pay at work or in relationships. Um, or they, and, and I believe they also kind of leave themselves a little more vulnerable for binging when they come back to the technology. So for me, it's all about figuring out ways of being moderate, while at the same time finding muses, embodied muses, that make technology worth leaving. <laughs> you know, so if that's a great bike ride or dancing to loud music in your space or um, whatever it is, you know, if we can find those embodied things that we can engage throughout the day, we'll have a much better chance of moderating our use of the time. Short breaks for a one person dance party. I'm into it. Right. Uh, and what about Nier's point of view? When I wrote Hooked, uh, I wrote it at a different age, right? I had to convince people that uh, the, the the Silicon Valley tech companies uh, weren't just getting lucky, right? Back when I wrote Hooked, I had to convince people that, no, they were using psychology. They understand what, what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. Uh, I had to t teach people that. Today, I don't have to convince anybody of that. They, everybody knows. Uh, and and I, I thought that, you know, technology can really make our lives better in so many ways. And so I wrote Hooked to democratize those techniques. I wanted to steal the secrets of Facebook and Twitter and Slack and all these companies that get people hooked so that all sorts of products and services can get people hooked to good habits. That's why I wrote Hooked. And then with Indistractable, I kind of swung in the other direction of like figuring out, hey, how do we take personal responsibility for this stuff? And, and how do we make sure that we don't have these bad habits? And I, I think now what I've revealed to myself is that you know we, we, we can find this happy medium. We can use these products in a way that serve us, but we don't serve them. And it doesn't necessarily require us swearing off of these things and going on these ridiculous digital detoxes. It's stupid. You know, by vilifying the technology, we miss out on it. You know, the technology is wonderful if we learn how to use it correctly. We live in this world where you have you know, infinite amounts of information, unlimited source of entertainment, uh, instant connectivity to anyone in the world. So the price of all that progress is, you know what? We kind of have to learn how to use it. 
right? Like if you buy a blender or a, a, a ba- bread baking machine, or I don't know, you read the instruction manual to figure out how to get the most out of the tool. But when do we do that for how to use the internet, <laughs> right? And so we have to make sure that we don't give up uh, our attention and our time in a way that doesn't serve us. We have to really understand how to become indistractable because I think the world is really bifurcating into people who become uh, indistractable and say, no, my time is my own. My attention is something that I control and those who let their time and attention be controlled by others. So it's not about swearing our devices and apps off. I mean, they're amazing products that do amazing things. And and look, we're product people, right? We, we probably can't uh, just cut our devices and apps away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there are some small steps we can take. Doreen has some small ideas that may be able to help some small actions that could go a long way. Good news is that we don't have to go completely away from these platforms. I really love technology. I think it's beautiful. And I, I liken feelings of dependency to technology a little bit more like to an eating disorder than to a substance use disorder. We have to learn how to live with this and we have to learn how to live with it well if we want to thrive in the world. So the really good news is that just even a 10 minute a day break, a 10 minute a day commitment to mindfulness meditation, um, kind of a rhythmic exercise that gets you in the zone where you're outside of your thoughts and, um, or even I'm, experimenting right now and kind of researching just 10 minutes a day of boredom or what the Dutch call Nixon, which is N-I-K-S-E-N, and it means to do nothing deliciously. That if we commit to that 10 minutes a day, we actually not only will develop the behavioral ability to kind of be still, come back to ourselves. One of the ways we could do this is by having some fidget toys around our desk that don't involve our cognitive mm-hmm. skills to have, um, or even to just go as simple as going and just running your hands under warm water and trying to take some deep breaths for three minutes, three times a day. 10 minutes of that a day has the ability to change us behaviorally as well as change us neurologically. It rewires the brain. It doubles the gray matter in the prefrontal cortex and it doubles the myelinization of the kind of brain connections in that same region, which means the efficiency of our ability to be regulated and to feel emotionally calm and steady is impacted by our brain when we just do this one little action. And near mention that user's manual that doesn't exist but probably should exist (laughs) right if only we had a user's manual for how to use the internet today although we sort of do we do well maybe not a complete user's manual but hey near il's book indistractable doreen doja mcgee's book device they're both books that could help us balance our lives and these amazing technologies that's true and they could help us be well as near puts it indistractable so to speak let us take power over these technologies, not let the technologies sort of run our lives. Doreen also has a newer book out called Restart, all about beginning a healthy post-pandemic life. And look, it might be a different topic, but it's probably something we should all check out too. Yeah, I'd say that's certainly relevant these days. So Mike, what are your final thoughts on all of this? Well, I definitely do think, at least for me, my device and some of these apps, they definitely have found their way into distracting me at times. And I see it with my friends and family too, for sure. And it's not that I hate these apps for it. Like Nir said, as product people, we're usually just trying to get people to even use our app for one minute. We should be so lucky if they use them more than that. But some of these apps are powerful. And with great power comes responsibility. So if any of you out there are the product people behind some of the apps we're talking about, well, I'll copy Doreen here and say, thank you. And maybe consider how you can start to play your part in helping people use and love your apps, but maybe there's a way to do it that's not causing distractions 
at the times when they don't need to be. And look, maybe it's an impossible task. We don't know, but (laughs) at least it's something to think about. Well, we'll be back next week with more from Rocketship.fm in this season of Antitrust. From Mike Belsito, this is Michael Saka. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.